Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Robert, I got a question for you. Hit me. What do you think is the most isolated and confined workspace in the world? Immediately, you want to think about the International Space Station, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty isolated. Um, you think about going into orbit. Mm-hmm. You think about maybe going to the North or South Pole or perhaps uh, – being on a ship in just the, the middle of the ocean, just you know, leagues upon leagues away from shore. But, you know, when you think about it, if you, say, are on an Antarctic research station mm-hmm. that's overwintering at, at the South Pole, maybe you're doing neutrino research or something down there, you might in some cases have the ability to, say, look out windows that's or right. at least maybe go outside for short periods of time. Yeah, or even if you're just stranded in the middle of the ocean, you can at least look up at that albatross, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you get a sense that there's something traveling somewhere. Uh, how about how about the International Space Station? That's got to be the most isolated and confined and maybe claustrophobic, right? Because you're in a can flying around at super high altitude around the Earth. There's no way to get back down quickly or easily. But then again, I think about – the windows. Yeah. When you're on the International Space Station, apparently they say lots of the astronauts up there spend huge amounts of their free time just looking out the windows, looking at the surface of the Earth, kind of letting that work on their consciousness and massage their brains. Uh, what would it be like to be on the International Space Station if there were no windows? Yeah, because because a lot has been said about looking out, seeing the Earth from above, experiencing uh, what has been uh, what do we know now as the the overview effect? You mm-hmm. know, almost a a semi religious experience. Uh, but if you didn't have those windows, if you were just sealed up within a, a a tube in this extreme environment, well, then that would be a lot like uh, another uh, extreme environment that we sometimes send people. Uh, not outer space, but inner space. Wait, you mean that movie where they inject you into the bloodstream? That, that's right. We're not talking about uh, entering the bloodstream of Martin Short. He's the one they go into? Yeah, he's the he's the, the subject, as I recall. I don't think I've actually seen that movie. Oh, what? You've got to see it. It's it's tremendous fun. Uh, it, had, you know, it has these – I remember watching it as a kid. It has all these uh, these, co- these cool little submarines that, uh, that move around inside the bloodstream. The action scene where Martin Short suddenly eats a Cheeto and they have <laughs> to fight it off. Yeah. But no, no, no. You're talking about another kind of environment that's more confining, more of a a crushed can of an existence without any ability to make contact with the world below or the world above. You're talking about life aboard a nuclear submarine. Yes, and you're certainly not going to get the overview effect. As we'll discuss in this episode, perhaps you'll get something more like the underview effect. Now, Robert, you have used this metaphor for submarines in our notes here, calling them the arcs of doom. I don't know where you got that or if that's just out of your brain, but I love it. Well, there's arcs with a K. So I'm thinking like Noah's arcs, Uh uh, Noah's Ark here. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, the idea is it's hard enough for us to sleep just knowing that dozens of nuclear ballistic missile submarines haunt the world's oceans, each containing the means to rain nuclear annihilation down on the world. But – What's it like to sleep aboard these uh, these uh, arcs of doom, if you will? Uh, it, it actually ties into long-term military study, and the results may actually help us send humans to other planets one day. Right. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about life and sleep and a little bit about psychological health 
aboard these deep arcs of doom. Now, I want to throw in a quick note. Uh, I know we've covered a fair amount of underwater episodes uh, this year. Have we now? Yeah, we have. <laughs> uh, under, underwater humanoids, uh, uh, the bathosphere, etc. Uh, we keep returning uh, to the ocean. And, uh, and really, I guess that's unavoidable because we live on a water world. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the ocean is where we encounter all these various mysteries and all these fabulous stories of scientific uh, exploration and, and mythic dreaming. It's the part of space we explore that actually has aliens. Right. And, and so we couldn't, we, we couldn't decide on the show not to cover the underwater realm, uh, even if someone demanded that we, we do so. Uh, but one of the reasons that, uh, that I've been drawn to a lot of underwater topics this year is because I've been writing an upcoming sci-fi underwater podcast for How Stuff Works. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations, Robert. Oh, thank you. This uh, is where we're saying it in public. That's right. We're, we're, uh, we're letting it leak out a little bit here. Uh, and uh, Joe, you're going to actually be on it as well. Uh, we've got a, a wonderful uh, little part uh, lined up for you. I'm sure it'll be magnificently dehumanizing. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of, of dehumanization, uh, let's let's get back to this world of uh, nuclear submarines and uh, and why we have them to begin with. Yeah. What are nuclear submarines? You've heard the phrase, but why do we have nuclear submarines? Is the Cold War still going on? Well, that's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, we should we should talk just a minute about submarines. So I have to admit, when I was a kid. Uh, my understanding of submarines was largely based on World War II era books and documentaries and movies, uh, you know, stuff like Das Boot mm-hmm. about the the German uh, submarines, the so U-boats. You, you're thinking about like an attack U-boat, uh, like sinking a cargo ship or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're also called uh, hunter-killer submarines. Uh, they're mm-hmm. going to be taking out enemy war vessels or cargo ships or occasionally uh, interacting with other submarines. And certainly, uh, various nations on Earth still employ attack subs. Uh, and some of these are nuclear-powered, uh, and, they, and they can go out for prolonged, unprolonged missions and spend a lot of time beneath the waves. But then there is the nuclear-powered ballistic missile sub. And this is a different uh, beast altogether. Yeah, these are sometimes referred to as strategic submarines. They're, yes. not, they're not made for battle tactics and combat they are strategic as part of the nuclear triad. That's right. The, the nuclear triad is essentially a, a, a defense slash offense strategy uh, concerning the possibility of nuclear war. Right. It's part of the mutually assured destruction deterrent system. Yeah. If you hit me with nuclear weapons, I will hit you with nuclear weapons, and then everybody loses, that sort of thing. Uh, but in order to fully offer that uh, vision of doom, you have to essentially have these three things lined up according to the nuclear triad. You need strategic bombers. Okay, so those would be flying around in the air. Mm-hmm. You need intercontinental ballistic missiles or ICBMs. So these would be launched from launch sites. Right, and then can travel um, ideally anywhere in the world or at least far enough to reach the key targets of interest. Okay. And then there are the submarine-launched ballistic missiles or SLBMs, and that's what would be launched from these submarines. Now, these are really key for a very specific reason. Imagine you've got a bunch of intercontinental ballistic missiles and the reason you say you have them at least – and by the way, I don't want to say we're necessarily advocating like the goodness of nuclear weapons or the correctness of nuclear right. weapons defensive strategy. But this is how this is how the mutually assured destruction system is supposed to work in theory. The idea 
idea is you have all these nuclear weapons to prevent anyone from attacking you because they can be assured that if they attack you, then you will respond with devastating force and that's supposed to prevent nuclear war from ever breaking out in the first place. Nobody can strike first because they would get hit back so hard. Um, but under that logic, if that's actually working, there is a problem with the idea of there just being ground-based launch areas because what if one side says, OK, so we've got really good surveillance and we've got spies and now we think we know where, you know, at least 90 percent of their launch sites are. So what if we can launch a first strike and take out all of their launch sites to begin with? Then, like, yeah. And yeah. likewise, the same applies to the strategic bombers because you could say, well, we know where their uh, airfields are yeah. and, and or we know where the planes are in the air that are out on regular maneuvers. Yeah, we can use radar. We, yeah, so we can figure that stuff out. What if you get one side saying, we think we could launch a first strike and mo mostly get away with it? You know, we can prevent their ability to strike back. So then submarines really become important to maintain the deterrence as the theory goes because if you have submarines capable of launching new from all over the world and the enemy can't really know where they are. They're hidden under the ocean somewhere mm -hmm. and you can't find them, then it ups the deterrence. It basically makes it say, no, you can't launch a first strike and just get away with it. It's like in a uh, in a crime movie where uh, one character is uh, is you know basically at gunpoint or at knife point, and they tell the villain, uh, "You can't kill me because if I die, I have a mysterious friend who will deliver a letter to right. the newspaper." Right. It's in a safe deposit box. Yeah. You know, you can't know where it is, but if I die, it's going to become public. And that's the basic concept here. Now, uh, SLBMs they. They emerged uh, during the Cold War as a reality, but uh, the idea goes back to World War II. The Germans were actually working on a submarine launch platform for their V-2s, their, their vengeance weapons, these large rockets that could be used to attack uh, other countries. It's one of the very commonly contemplated nightmare scenarios of alternative history is mm -hmm. imagining – what what would have happened in World War II if the Nazis had had greater technological advances in their weaponry? Right. And they already had significant technological advances. But a lot of these ideas they, they were not able to really get outside of the testing zone on. Right. Uh, and this was one of those. They never tested it. But the architects of this and other weapon systems, of course, continued their work in the U.S. and in the USSR. Right, which led to a not alternative history but the real history terrifying scenario mm -hmm. of mutually assured destruction and, you know, the constant sort of hair trigger alert system on which we kept all these nuclear weapons and nuclear strategic submarines throughout the Cold War. Yeah, and uh, I, anyone who's really interested in this topic, uh, definitely go check out our episode uh, There But For Science. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, that was an episode where we talked about communication with nuclear submarines and uh, how we actually do it and then this one alleged uh, scheme to try and carry out secret communication with nuclear subs via essentially blood magic. <laughs> that was a weird episode, but I liked it. Was, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, basically the idea is that maybe according to some anecdotes, the Soviets were working on uh, tests to use psychics to communicate with uh, strategic submarines. I mean, who knows if that's exactly true, but mm -hmm. th that's at least what was alleged. I'll make sure there's a link to it on the landing page for this episode. I feel like it kind of uh, fell through the cracks for, for some listeners. So um, we have these vessels out there. And again, we have nuclear power uh, on board. So you know, they're not having to worry about, about filling, uh, filling up at the local gas station. Uh, but they require a human crew. Uh, the crew has to work in a very confined environment and they have to stay submerged the entire time for months at a time. 
Though the the main restriction apparently on such nuclear-powered subs is food. And I've read uh, that the meals get kind of interesting towards the end of the mission when they're running out of uh, – <laughs> Out of, uh, out, of, out of stuff to cook, uh, there's a, a straight dope uh, message board user who mentioned, quote, chili mac with a side of canned beets <laughs> as an example. Uh, I read another example from some user somewhere about uh, uh, going for like weeks at a time at the end of the mission just getting pancakes. <laughs> every meal was pancakes for weeks. Uh, well, you know how it is when you make pancakes. You, always, you, you have all that leftover batter. So do you put the batter away? Do you throw it out? Or do you just keep making pancakes? Clearly the answer is just keep making pancakes until you return to port. I mean, I hope they were real buttermilk pancakes. <laughs> that buttermilk makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. Now, all that said, I've actually also read that when it's fresh, submarine food is supposed to be about the best food you get in the armed forces. Have you, have you read about this, Robert? Yeah, I've seen that cited as one of the reasons uh, uh, sailors actually go after the submarine assignment yeah. is that there's going to be great food. Yeah, so – and that's supposed to basically be an incentive, one of the incentives to draw sailors into this – in many ways, very undesirable task of mm -hmm. serving for months at a time on a deep-sea submarine where you're not going to get to see the sun or look at a tree or see your family or any of that good stuff. At least you'll get some tasty food, uh, hopefully for as long of the trip as that's possible, though, you know, who knows, if you're out there too long and the supplies haven't been planned quite right, then you might get some weird stuff later on. Uh, I read an article in the LA Times about – how good submarine food is supposed to be. This was by a writer named Peter Pay. Uh, just to read a quote from this, he's talking about a specific meal being served within the submarine. Quote, on cue, mess specialist Richard Yowen begins slicing a 25-pound prime rib roast into half-inch thick pieces before gingerly transferring the second entree, baked lobster tails <laughs> with spicy Old Bay seasoning, onto a serving tray. Sautéed mushrooms, baked potatoes, and beef rice soup come next, with baskets full of hot oven-baked bread that was made from scratch. For dessert, Yuhan, a Petty officer third class and former French pastry baker from Cyprus has prepared chocolate and lemon cakes made with real chocolate and freshly squeezed lemon juice. Oh, wow. That is not what I would expect. I mean, I would have thought if, okay, you're on a submarine, you'd want to pack a lot of extremely non-perishable, calorie-rich, dense foods. So a lot of like canned meat and stuff, right? Yeah. Because space is at such a premium. Yeah, absolutely. They're just packed in there. So you would think that the food would be something that's very uh, uh, conducive to that environment. But on the other hand, the psychological well-being of the crew is really important in a deep-sea submarine. You don't want your strategic submarine to be full of people having deep-sea madness because they've been eating spam for months. Right. You don't want that spam sandwich to be the, the, the straw <laughs> that breaks the camel's uh, back for their sanity. Yeah, it will not be your ice cream bar. Because obviously you're stuck in a very contained environment uh, with the same people and, of course, the same air. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a good question. So you might be thinking, wait, 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 wait. So you're saying that this nuclear submarine uh, gets into a strategic launch, launch position. It's a secret. It can't come to the surface or it might be detected. So it's got to stay down for maybe months at a time, at least weeks at a time. And 
that the main problem is running out of food? Why wouldn't <laughs> they run out of air first? That seems obvious, right? Right, yeah. You, you would think, oh, I'm, I'm going to be stuck underwater. Uh, I, I want I want to get the air situation uh, uh, taken care of before I wonder, wonder about my lobster tail. It seems a little important, right? Yeah. I mean, if it's like you have to choose between eating and breathing. I mean, I love food, but I would probably <laughs> pick breathing. Uh, so obviously it would be difficult for a submarine to bring along enough oxygen tanks for – and it could be dangerous to bring along enough compressed oxygen for crew members to breathe for 90 days. So how do the humans on board a submarine get fresh, breathable air? Well, think about it. What do you have in abundance that you can work with on a deep-sea submarine with a nuclear reactor inside of it? Well, you've got power. That's right. you got electricity and you got, of course, plenty of water. So nuclear submarines have the power to actually create fresh oxygen using oxygen generators. Uh, and this is done through a process known as electrolysis. So a water molecule is H2O. It's two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. And if you apply a strong chemical current to a container of water in the right way, it'll split into its atomic constituents. Those water molecules will break up under the, the influence of the electrical energy and they'll release oxygen gas and hydrogen gas. This is actually sort of the inverse of what happens in a hydrogen fuel cell, right? A fuel cell combines hydrogen and oxygen to produce electricity and water. This process combines electricity and water to produce hydrogen and oxygen. Now, of course, if you think about things like the Hindenburg, it can sound kind of scary to have pure hydrogen and pure oxygen in your submarine, right? Yeah, that sounds explosive. Yeah, I mean, and we can actually think back to tragedies in uh, the history of space exploration where, uh, you know, enriched oxygen environments led to deadly fires, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so you want to be careful when dealing with pure hydrogen or, uh, or high oxygen content in your environments. So you've got to get rid of that excess hydrogen for one thing. So the oxygen is preserved for atmospheric circulation, but then the hydrogen byproduct of the electrolysis is purged into seawater or burned in a controlled system. And, of course, that's not the only issue with breathable air, right? You also have to worry about the toxic byproducts of human respiration like CO2. And there they use chemical scrubbers, right? Uh, like a monoethanol amine can be used to absorb carbon dioxide and then that can be purged. Now, this would, of course, be a more robust system than what we saw in the bathosphere where you just had trays of chemicals uh, <laughs> lining the top of the sphere. Yeah, just what did they have? It was basically just like a tray of lime or something? Yes, yeah, something to that effect. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was something like that. Um, but yeah, so y you clearly start to get a sense of the the delicate balance that one must maintain in a pressurized environment in a submarine deep under the ocean where, of course, if there was to be a leak or something like that, you know, you, you, could, have, uh, you could have the depths and compression of the seawater kill you. You could have uh, contaminants in the atmosphere inside the submarine kill you. You've also just got super cramped conditions. Everything's tight everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it starts to make you wonder, what's it like to be one of these people aboard the submarine? What's it like to be a submariner? How does that get to your psychological health? And how does it affect your, your daily patterns of behavior and things like sleep? Exactly. And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, for the rest of this episode. We're going to look at a, a few different papers that have come out over the years that uh, try and get to the bottom of just what's going on with a submariner's sleep. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So one of the sources we looked at for this episode is a 1969 paper titled Human Adjustment to an Exotic Environment – 
the nuclear submarine by Jim H. Earls, M.D. of Oklahoma City. And this was based in part on his observations as a doctor aboard two nuclear-propelled Polaris missile-firing submarines. And uh, you know, this is – it's a very readable paper. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and while it's nearly half a century old at this point, we do have to – we do have to recognize uh, – and it doesn't attempt to speak to the conditions on all subs, it's still worth discussing. It still makes some uh, – in, in a way, it's it's one of the more useful papers that's come out because he's willing to just sort of observe the submariner in its unnatural environment, almost like it's an animal. Yes, and a passionate animal at that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he, a lot of this is – it's almost borderline Freudian, right? Yeah. I mean, he's talking a lot about – how different types of uh, mood affects, but also urges and things like that, and how they get uh, elevated or sublimated. It's it's a really interesting read. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna move through uh, the paper here and touch on some of the high points. So he pointed out that uh, quote the U.S. Navy, in apparent recognition of man as the limiting factor, has elected to man each Polaris submarine with two complete crews. These crews alternate between being on the submarine for about 90 days and receiving refresher training at the U.S. Navy base. This method of manning the Polaris submarine has apparently been adopted to obtain the maximum submerged patrol time on a continuing basis. So the idea here is, yeah, people are going down for months at a time on this, but then they have to bring it back. Uh, They have to bring the submarine back. They have to put in a new crew. Uh, and also do some maintenance on the vehicle before it goes back out again. Yeah, and apparently something that was true both then and now is that if you want to be on a submarine crew, you have to go through a lot of training and screening ahead of time. That's right. They're screening for intellectual level, emotional stability, physical status. Uh, and they they just run tests on you, right, you know, for mm-hmm. basically your submarine competence. Yeah, and uh, each of the uh, the, the subs uh, that, uh, that the author here uh, discusses would have been crewed by 140 men. And they they would live there 60 days at a time, and then there would be this 28-day uh, upkeep interval. Yeah, but of course, one thing when you think about on a submarine is you just mentioned like length of days. So you, imagine you're on a submarine at the bottom of the ocean for 60 days. Yeah. What does 60 days mean at the bottom of the ocean? Obviously, there is still a, a, a measurable length of time. Like you could count out the hours and it's not like a general relativity issue. Like it's still the same number of hours that the surface would measure. But if you're never seeing the sun rise and set and you're never seeing the moon and you're never hearing the crickets chirp at night and you never hear the rooster crow in the morning and nothing happens to mark the sort of the daily milestones of the passage of time, what do days mean? Well, this is, a, uh, this is where Earls uh, describes it as, uh, quote, some loss of circadian and geographical orientation. So you, <laughs> you'd imagine, <laughs> yeah. So your body's not really sure what what time it is, and it, and, and so you're getting into this um, what I've seen referred to in, in some papers as diurnal flattening, mm-hmm. uh, and then you're you have no idea where you are really. I mean, you know you're under 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 the the sea, you know you're deep in the ocean, and perhaps depending on you know who you are in the crew, perhaps you know more specifically where you are, but it doesn't. How much does that – what does that mean to you if you can't actually observe it? Yeah, so you're operating somewhat independently of of the passage of days and nights on the surface. So if you still want to operate on the basis of days, there being such a thing as a day and that mattering, what do you have to judge that by? Well, Earl says you have the, the meals. You have your three <laughs> meals a day okay. and then you have the evening movie. And these become the, the the pillars of your understanding of time. I wonder what movies they were showing on submarines in the 1960s. 
Hmm. Oh man, I'd have to I'd have to really dive into IMDb, but I'm guessing they were probably they probably weren't watching submarine pictures that that much. I assume. Uh, I'm guessing they were watching you know stuff with some nice beach scenes, maybe some beach comedies. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the the submarine brought along one movie. The movie was Monster a Go Go, <laughs> and they just watched it every night. Oh, that that is not unless it is a legitimate psychological experiment. Uh, <laughs> I don't see that going over well. I mean, it's about the right time period. I think yeah. it works. Yeah. Well, I can see monster movies as being the the type of of thing that would go over well. There. Oh, I would love to watch monster movies on a submarine. <laughs> I just would want to be able to leave the submarine afterwards. Yeah. And now, on top of this, Earl points out that you, you're in a very stationary world, but one where there's just constant white noise. Uh, it's like being in a white noise machine, and then the only, but the only time you really no, notice uh, what's going on is if there's some change in the white noise. Yeah, and then you might wonder what's wrong, what's changed. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, he describes the white noise as being sort of part of a larger background of not just the sound, but a white background, like a totally mm-hmm. unchanging environment. Yeah, uh, that your environment is just static and nothing happens to it. There's no weather. There's no day-night cycle. It's just it's like living a purely artificial existence. Right. And then you have almost no private space. He points out that like the room you watch the movies in, it's not like they have a they, – they would have had a, a dedicated movie theater. No, that was some other space perhaps where you ate that got converted. Uh, if uh, some sort of uh, medical procedure needed to be uh, uh, conducted, that would take place in uh, one of these, uh, these, these rooms as well. So mm-hmm. – Everybody's sharing the same space. Spaces are being used for different purposes. And he paints a picture of like basically just crawling all over each other. I think one of the problems for us surface folk trying to figure out what it's like to be in a submarine is we have all these submarine movies. Mm -hmm. And the submarine sets, I've I've always enjoyed this, like watching an old submarine movie especially and seeing how large they make the space appear because you need enough space for a fistfight usually. Yeah. Oh, they seem quite spacious. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think about scenes in The Hunt for Red October where people are like running around (laughs) and, and there are these rooms with all this like empty floor space. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen Das Boot uh, so I, I could be completely wrong, but I, I seem to remember there being a lot of really cramped uh, sets in that movie. But I'm sure some movies do it better than others. Yeah, but some of them just really go wide. Like let's basically you have a basketball court in there. What's what's that room um, in the Hunt for Red October? I remember there's a scene on the Soviet sub where the, they start singing the national anthem, and it's in this <laughs> like, if my memory is right, it's this like echoey hall. Oh wow. It's been too long since I've seen that. Well, I've maintained for years that they should turn The Hunt for Red October into a Broadway musical. <laughs> I, seriously, I've got it all planned out. I think, like, I've got some of the songs written. I think it could be really good. Oh, wow. Well, that, that's how I want to see this movie again, then, as a, as a musical. All the songs are written by Jim Steinman, so they're very punny. <laughs> There's one called, like, A Lesson in Tactics. All right. Very rock-oriented uh, as yeah, well. That's all I got right now. Okay, you're not going to sing anything? No. Okay. Um... Now, on top of uh, – <laughs> No, wait. Starring Meatloaf as Captain Ramius. OK, that's oh, God, all I got. That would I'm be done. Good. That would I'm be done. Good. <laughs> all right. So on, t- on top of, of all this we've discussed so far, uh, Earls also mentions that – I mean at the heart of this, you have this terrible purpose. Mm-hmm. Like every day is pretty – going to be much the same, rule by routine. Nothing is really happening aboard one of these subs. Uh-huh. But if it does happen, if the, if the submarine's uh, key purpose comes into play, uh, that is because uh, it, it is involved in a, uh, in, a, in a nuclear exchange. He says he, 
the, the, the submariner, is also aware that these missiles are to be fired only in retaliation to a nuclear attack on the United States. So if they do the job that is sort of like their primary potential job down there, mm-hmm. it's only because something terrible has happened to the world. Yeah, something just horrifying has occurred. And 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 it, of course, raises all these questions, like the, the family that you're potentially separated from, uh-huh. the, the, the world, the daily life that you were uh, dreaming of in the sub, uh, what has happened to it? You've had to act, and and what kind of world are you going to surface to? Earl says this sort of leads to this feeling of avoidance about the idea and also the idea that the, the quote, payload mm-hmm. is referred to in, in highly technical terms. Like they don't necessarily talk about the nuclear missiles. Right. They talk about it in abstracted, euphemistic, technical-type words. Now, one of the cool things he does in this article is he he divides up the mission into uh, into four phases. Yeah, I like this. Yeah, he talks about like the opening weeks and how people are are feeling about things, and and then how their psychological condition seems to change. Uh, basically, what what is the timeline? What are the ups and downs from uh, departure to return? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what we've been talking about here occurs during that initial phase, the the first week or so. But he says that uh, during uh, the the second week of submergence, the crew members begin to experience sleep disturbances. And this, he says, can range from insomnia to uh, hypersomnia. So not being able to sleep or sleeping way too much. Uh, It seems like normal kinds of reactions you might expect from being confined to an artificial environment without natural light or changes mm-hmm. in light. Yeah, you're just your circadian rhythms all over the place. And this is a, what he calls the first quarter syndrome. And there's another interesting uh, aspect of first quarter syndrome that he points out and that is gang behavior. Uh, specifically he says quote adolescent gang behavior because he talks about how the the parts uh, you know the different crews within the submarine sort of the sub crews like you've got the sonar crew mm-hmm. you've got the the weapons crew or the missile crew you've got the navigation crew they all they all sort of break into their own natural tribes because they work with one another mm-hmm. and they will essentially behave like gangs against one another pranking one another stealing totemic objects from the <laughs> other gangs <laughs> That's, that's what you want to hear about, uh, adolescent pranks uh-huh. on a, uh, on a uh, nuclear submarine. It's tactics within strategy and strategy within tactics. <laughs> so the, the mission continues and you're going to reach uh, the point where uh, what Earls calls uh, halfway syndrome kicks in. And this, he says, is going to be characterized by depression, complaints. Uh, Very and, subjective complaints, right? Yeah, he says the major portion of the crew experience uh, changes in appetite, uh, changes in bowel function, uh, headaches, muscle aches, difficulty in concentration, uh, and sleep disturbances on top of just general pessis- pessimism and boredom. Now, before this stage, uh, Earls mentions that there is a lot of joking among the crew, especially sexual jokes. Yeah, and this would, I guess, be pl- coming into play during the pranking period as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I guess that's part of the cliche, right, is that sailors are going to tell dirty jokes. Mm -hmm. But he says that at this stage, the humor actually changes in tone, right, and in content. Yeah, it goes from being mostly sexual to being sarcastic humor. There was an interesting section I just wanted to read from Earls about this. He says, quote, This change in humor style appears to serve two functions. One is the discharge of hostile and aggressive affect, which is personally and culturally unacceptable and which might otherwise be physically acted out. 
The second is the keeping of the other shipmates at a comfortable distance, resulting in the temporary expansion of an individual's personal territory. Huh. I, I thought that was really interesting about the the idea of changes in just types of humor playing these very important psychological roles, one of which is that obviously when you're living in a cramped space with a bunch of other dudes, especially if they're doing adolescent pranks and stuff, Mm -hmm. you're going to start getting mad and you want to display anger, but that's not acceptable under the command structure for for Navy officers, right? Right. And also it's just such an enclosed, tight uh, environment. Like there's no – there's almost literally no room for that kind of response. Yeah, exactly. So you can't can't lash out in anger at Mm -hmm. your crewmates. So there, so you have to sublimate the anger somehow, and it turns into this this sort of hard edged sarcastic humor. And the other part being, if you're sarcastic with people, you psychologically keep them at an arm's length. When you're sarcastic, it sort of makes you more invulnerable and keeps people more separate from you, uh, discourages emotional vulnerability and and this feeling of closeness with others, which actually helps make you feel like you've got a bubble of personal space around you, even if it's only imaginary and psychological. Logical. Now, he says that occasionally during this period, uh, you'll have some individuals who begin to complain about uh, the loss of normal circadian uh, clues and may eventually report, uh, quote, brief uh, derealization or depersonalization-like episodes. That's creepy. <laughs> and then three-quarters syndrome uh, sets in. And then he says this is a, a sudden but short-lived uh, elevation of mood. I guess that the idea is, hey, we're over the hump. We're on the we're essentially on the way back, sort of. And in this point, we'll see the sexual humor return. He says, <laughs> "Okay." And then in the final weeks, we see an elevation in mood. Uh, there was some anxiety about a return to the, the surface life, uh, you know, without the structure of the submarine world, at least for some of the individuals. Uh, and then also a diminished need for sleep among some. Yeah, I also thought this section was interesting because Earls talks about the stresses of the environment in a way being offset mm-hmm. by a kind of strange set of psychological circumstances. <laughs> fostering a mindset of childlike dependence. He writes, quote, The sailor has been living in an emotionally stressful environment, but an environment which also regularly, reliably, and abundantly met his physical needs, with the singular exception of sex. The sailor has not had to employ even the normal terrestrial maneuvers needed to obtain food, shelter, clothing, etc., By necessity, all has been provided for him. It is not uncommon during the submerged patrol to hear the submariner make joking references to returning to the womb, and he is capable of recognizing the omnipresent justification for his remark. Yeah, this was – I found this really interesting as well because I feel like I can relate to a certain extent. Like there have been times – I don't get sick that often, but when I do get like truly sick – there's almost a comfort at times mm-hmm. in this becoming your your sort of prime uh, adversary in life. This being the the prime battle, mm-hmm. you know, I have to to stop puking, and when that is when, I, when that's accomplished, then I can worry about all the other paper tigers in my world. Well, also it might be the case. I mean, it might not might not be the case, but it might be the case when you're sick that you have other people 
doing more to take care of you directly yeah. than you normally would. Normally, these are things you need to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. But when you're sick, sometimes family members or friends will do things to to take care of you and watch out for you. And it can create this feeling of like almost not wanting to return to the self, self-responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you, you've been able to at least get one leg out of the adult world and back into the, the world of childhood. Yeah, one interesting point of comparison I thought was that uh, was in observing patterns of adaptation to wintering in the Antarctic. So you imagine you're in an Antarctic research station and, you know, you're trying to get through the winter. It's sort of like being in a submarine, not maybe not quite as confined as being totally submerged in a submarine, but you're basically stuck inside. And uh, so when you're in that environment, apparently military subjects showed very similar types of symptoms to what Earls is reporting from the submariners, like uh, depressive symptoms. But the civilians apparently did not show similarly depressive symptoms and instead showed symptoms of anger and wrath lashing out that the military subjects basically couldn't display because it was not acceptable as part of their culture. Uh, Here's a quote uh, from Mullen. Quote, we were impressed by the relative absence of overtly expressed hostility. Group and individual tensions and irritations are ever-present, but the most important lesson a a wintering-over man learns is that he cannot afford to alienate the group. That, in this tight little society, he is dependent in large measure upon the goodwill of the next man and of the group as a whole for his vital feelings of security, worth, and acceptance. makes you think about the nature of small group tribal existence as well. Yeah. Like how do group dynamics change when the people around you are essential for your survival and you know you can't get away from them? Yeah. I mean it almost feels like a team building exercise, right? Yeah. Uh, and instead of doing icebreakers, you just need to you know, get your IT uh, team and just put them in a submarine for three months. Now, there are a lot of reasons that this research we've been talking about, that this sort of set of case studies from 1969, might not be applicable to what life could be like on submarines today. I'm, I'm sure a lot of the same conditions are present, but things have probably changed a lot too in technological ways, mm-hmm. in social and psychological ways. One thing I, I definitely wonder about is the extent to which these symptoms would remain the same or change in a mixed gender crew environment as opposed to the all-male crews of the late 60s? Yeah, that's a great question. So we did look at some other uh, information about uh, about sleeping upon a, a military submarine. There was a 1981 Naval uh, Submarine Medical Research Laboratory report on uh, work and rest on nuclear submarines. And I'm just going to roll through the key findings here. This this paper was was not nearly as delightful uh, <laughs> as the Earl's paper. A little more clinical. Yeah. Uh, so they pointed out that the workload of uh, of the average uh, submariner averages about 12 hours a day with considerable individual variation. Uh, the smallest 30-day average recorded was 7.4 hours and the largest was 15.6 hours. They said the sleeping habits were affected by the 18-hour activity cycle created by the 6 hours on, 12 hours off watch schedule. Said sleep may be considered uh, mildly fragmented uh, in that uh, men average 1.3 sleep episodes of somewhat less than six-hour duration in 24 hours, but the total daily quantity of sleep was considered adequate. And subjective sleep quality was slightly lower on patrol than in a post-patrol period. They said that while there was a lot of sleepiness reported 50% of the time, they do point out that the stability of their environment actually seems to make them sleep better and report less sleepiness than other active duty environments on the surface. Yeah, this is a thing that I wouldn't have considered before I read about this, but that 
when you're on a surface vessel, of course, you're dealing with the rocking of the waves and all that. You've mm-hmm. got to get your sea legs basically, right? But uh, when you are on a submerged submarine in the deep, apparently it's it feels very stable. You might as well be on the surface. That's right. Uh, the, the paper says, quote, sleep on submarines may be considered mildly fragmented in the sense uh, that daily sleep quota is not taken in a single episode at a usual time of day. Even for men standing uh, 6 18 watches, shipboard sleep is considerably more irregular than in most shore settings. The quality of sleep is somewhat lower on patrol than at home, but the sleep quality indices do not suggest that sleep quality is so poor as to be considered a problem. The slight reduction in sleep quality may be related to the 18-hour cycle or simply to shipboard living conditions. Now, considering sleep on modern submarines, one thing I've read about in multiple sources is uh, specifically it's a slang term in that's used in British Royal Navy subs. But apparently crew members have a slang term for a common type of nightmare or possibly based on the reports what seems to me like maybe a hypnopompic hallucination state. This would be a hallucination you experience as you're uh, uh, in that, that netherworld between uh, being awake and being asleep. As you're waking up yeah. specifically uh, as opposed to the hypnagogic hallucination which tends to be when you're falling asleep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're called coffin dreams. Mm. So just a few things I've read about them uh, from ex- – uh, for example, from a 2003 Telegraph article I was reading about uh, life aboard Royal Navy submarines, quote, The men grab what sleep they can, racked three deep in dark cabins with barely a foot of space between the opposing rows of bunks. They, quote, hot bunk, sharing the use of a rack with a shipmate working on an alternate watch. Sometimes they get, quote, coffin dreams, nightmares from which they come to in the close dark, not knowing where they are, and panic. Oh. And so I've read that, for example, the coffin dreams can be triggered by a sense of claustrophobia, maybe even actually thinking you are waking up in some type of coffin or container because uh, according to the Friends of the Royal Navy Submarine Museum – Basically, in a sleeping condition on a typical submarine bunk, you've got another bunk maybe close above you or a, or a flat surface like a roof right above you with like an inch or two clear all around your body basically. I mean it just it just doesn't sound like there's much room to move. Uh, and I can imagine waking up in that state would – it could be terrifying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and imagine if you just come to, you're just, you're just going to go – Face first, or the back of the head uh, first, right into the uh, into the bulkhead. Exactly. Or the person below you, if you're stacked on bunks, might be kneeing you and stuff oh. while they wake up having a coffin dream. Uh, on a the, on a totally unscientific online poll, I found on the Friends of the Royal Navy Submarine Museum website. So, you know, unscientific poll, but for what it's worth, uh, 38% of respondents on this online poll claim to have had coffin dreams when they were aboard submarines. And then from a 2012 article in The Guardian by Stephen Moss uh, in which he experiences life aboard a nuclear submarine, he writes, quote, Several men mention coffin dreams, nightmares in which the sleeper shouts out that the control room is flooding or he is being pursued by a torpedo. I sympathize. I have no nightmares. I don't sleep deeply enough for that. The racks do feel like coffins. Mm-hmm. Now, I've definitely personally had the experience of my environment, the environment in which I'm sleeping, seeming to affect my dreams or maybe uh, hypnopompic hallucinations as I'm waking up. 
But, uh, but yeah, I, I've never experienced anything like this. Nothing this cramped, nothing this strange. And, and pile that on all of the strange environmental stresses that exist in normal life while you're on a submarine. So the, these experiences are piling up while you're awake throughout the day and then you go sleep in the coffin. It's not hard to see why you would get certain types of nightmares being very common and recurrent. Yeah, and depending on during you know which era you are sleeping, you're talking about all sorts of repressed anxiety about – Torpedoes seeking you out of, of depth charges of uh, of, of the, the actual terrible purpose that these uh, these uh, nuclear uh, weapon equipped subs uh, are tasked with. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. All right, so we've been talking about life aboard nuclear submarines, especially when they remain submerged for long periods of time and how that affects the psychology of crew members and especially the sleep of the crew members. Uh, but I thought we maybe should look at a couple more sources before we wrap it up for today. Yeah, and these are far more recent sources. Um, there's one titled Three Decades of Nuclear Submarine Research, Implications for Space and Antarctic Research. And this came from Benjamin B. Waybrew. Uh, and he pointed out some of the following points. Uh, he mentions that it's sometimes called inner space as opposed to outer space. Okay, so we're back to Quaid territory. Right. And he also mentions that uh, bathophobia is very real uh, as opposed to the, uh, the, the, the fear of depressurization in space. So would this be fear of what uh, – of the – submarine being crushed like a tin can. Yeah, just knowing all that pressure out there. He also points that it, it points out that as uh, the submerged missions of uh, 30 to 80 days progress, uh, there also is this uh, tendency to, um, to, to worry more about the possibilities of atmospheric uh, contaminants. Yeah, I mean, you got to worry if your air is clean, right? Well, uh, you think of like a lot of the things we fear in life, we fear change. Mm -hmm. And you have such a static environment, you have to look to the areas where change can occur, such as air quality or machine failure. Now, when we were talking about William Beebe in the bathysphere, mm -hmm. I remember one of the creepiest thoughts I had about it was that, okay, this is a heavier-than-water vessel mm -hmm. uh, that, that's being lowered down basically on a chain. What were to happen – what would happen if it were to have its connection to the surface vessel severed? Well, this bathysphere, it would just sink, right? It would mm -hmm. just sink to the bottom of the ocean and you'd be done. Right, but uh, there's similar concerns in place with uh, with the nuclear submarine. Uh, loss of power uh, could prevent the sub's ability to blow ballast and return to the surface. At and, least in the examples at this time. Right, yeah. at least in these examples. And during all of this, uh, Waybrew points out that uh, the individuals may experience sleep problems and, uh, and diurnal flattening. So, and again, we're just coming back to the idea that uh, circadian rhythm is disrupted by the environment. Mm -hmm. And then there's this point that he makes. Uh, this was interesting as well. Quote, uh, psychologists specializing in vision – uh, demonstrated in the late 1940s that the close viewing distance in subs caused the lateral phorias to become esophoric. In response to this finding, it was recommended that landscapes and seascapes with deep depth cues be installed on the bulkheads of selected compartments. So esophoria is the tendency of the eyes to want to 
turn inward more than they need to when focusing on something close up. Hmm. Uh, so if I'm interpreting that correctly, that seems like there could be a risk of submariners going cross-eyed. Yeah, I mean, because again, you have to realize that we, of course, did not evolve to live within a submarine, within a confined tube. We evolved to to live in a, a much more open world, and that's that's what our eyes are designed to, to take in. Right. If you're just constantly looking at stuff close to your face all the time, like say maybe you're a person who's always staring at a computer screen <laughs> or you're in a tightly closed environment. Yeah. I mean, you got to wonder if that's messing with your vision to some extent. And so it sounds like here they're saying we need to put in place something that at least gives them the feeling of being able to look at something far away. Yeah. Okay, let's put a motivational poster up on this bulkhead. Uh, this also seems where movie night would have become essential, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and might have dictated the type of movies that they would have watched. You get something with some nice wide open countryside, maybe some westerns. Uh, I recommend Orson Welles movies for those uh, the, the deep focus scenes, right, where you can mm-hmm. see the focus way in the back of the field of, oh, yeah. uh, of what they're shooting. Yeah, let's ha- have a few uh, showings of Touch of Evil aboard yeah. the ship. Now, um, the author also um, identified, quote, effects of absence of circadian cues upon sleep, noise level, work overload and underload, and environmental conditions tending to produce boredom and fatigue. However, there's good news. He says that the incidence of acute or chronic psychopathology during uh, uh, during long missions is incredibly low between only 1% and 4%. Uh, but wait a minute. If you've got a crew of 140, that, that means you got at least one <laughs> statistically <laughs> well, who's, okay. who's not doing great. Yeah, I guess that's why you have a, a doc on board, right, uh-huh. to, to mitigate that, those uh, situations. Uh, he also brings up something that was uh, – that uh, that was apparently introduced as a way to to mitigate some of these other effects, and that is periscope liberty. Hmm. Well, what does that mean? So this so the idea here is that you would let crew members glance at the outside world through the periscope for the purpose of quote cognitive anchoring. And this is also interesting as well. He uh, he points out that errors in time perception tend to occur in the direction of overestimation of time intervals, which makes sense. If you're bored and you're fatigued, you might say, oh, man, I can't believe we've been down here three months. And then Greg turns to you and says, this is day three. Yeah. And in closing, uh, the author points out uh, a few key areas of concern for that we can take away from all this uh, when we consider Arctic submarine and space missions of the future. Uh, He points out uh, atmospheric uh, revitalization and contaminant control, uh, development and validation of procedures for the medical and psychological screening of recruits, Uh identification of techniques for initiating and sustaining individual motivation and group morale, stressor identification, assessment uh, of the severity of POSR or patterns of stress reactivity for person, uh, and development of effective stress coping strategies. Now, I wonder to what extent those actually do get mapped on to how we deal with life, say, aboard the International Space Station. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't send just anybody up to the ISS. There is a rigorous uh, screening and then training uh, uh, regime in place to get you there. I have heard a lot less about issues of motivation relating to astronauts. Maybe it's there, but I feel like I've read a good bit about what life is like aboard the ISS and accounts of the astronauts who were there. And I don't remember hearing a lot about problems with, say, individual motivation or group morale. Yeah, and as far as the idea of a lazy astronaut, you, that's, that is his science fiction a, a concept as, as we can possibly bring up on the show because at this stage in space exploration, you've really got to want to be there. I guess maybe things would be different if we were talking about uh, 
about crude orbiting satellites that were there for the purpose of maintaining a nuclear deterrent. Right, right, and, and or forcing somebody to watch bad movies. Right. But you could you could do both. That's the thing. <laughs> you could do both. I see you there. Now there have been some recent uh, changes. Uh, as reported by the Associated Press in 2014, the Navy began experimenting with 14-hour days as opposed to the 18-hour uh, activity cycles that uh, had been the standard. Mm -hmm. uh, the article says, "Quote: Submarine crews are not big enough to support more than three watch rotations, and beginning in the 1960s." The Navy capped shifts at six hours in part to limit fatigue as sailors manned the vessel's nuclear reactors. But the study by the Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory at the submarine base in uh, Groton uh, documented weariness that can set in every third cycle as sailors are working when their bodies are accustomed to sleeping. So the Navy laboratory in uh, Groton conducted experiments beginning in 2005 looking at sleep patterns, melatonin levels, and all this through various monitoring devices and uh, saliva swabs. However, it's worth noting that when the attack sub Scranton tried out this new activities uh, cycle during a seven-month uh, deployment, the new schedule initially caused laundry backlogs <laughs> and frustration over laptop and exercise equipment availability. Laundry backlogs? Yeah. Um, what's, the, what's the causal connection there? I, I'm not – that one is not as, as clear to me. I mean I can imagine <laughs> – the, the laptop and exercise machine, right? Uh -huh. Because suddenly there's more overlap in, uh, in, in, in wakefulness and there's more demand for these, uh, these devices. And, of course, the, the mention of laptops also brings up the idea like your, your modern submariner has an entirely different situation compared to the submariner of the past. Uh -huh. Because in addition to the evening movie, you've got – I mean certainly you're not connected to the, the World Wide Web, but you have the, you know, all the potential of a laptop computer. Maybe even episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind to get you through the, uh, the trip. Oh, yeah. Are you listening to us on a nuclear submarine right now? If so, let us know when you come back to uh, when you come back within radio range. Yeah, obviously, we would love to hear from anyone out there who has served on a nuclear submarine. Now, if a lot of the stress of the submarine environment is due to isolation from the outside world and sort of a lack of exposure to nature, lack of exposure to sunlight and the cramped claustrophobic conditions, I wonder if this is not a really prime opportunity for virtual reality therapy. We've talked plenty of times about virtual reality therapy on the show before. Um, and there are lots of ways it could be used, right? One of the important ways that I often think about is most interesting about virtual reality is the sense that it can give you that your body is different than what it is. Mm. And this can be used for all kinds of medical therapies. But of course, on the submarine, I would imagine the main thing would be the more traditional type of virtual reality, which is that your environment is different than what it is. It could give you some depth of field to look at that's full of nice and nurturing kind of natural environments. So the same way the crew of the Enterprise can go to the holodeck, right, mm -hmm. and hang out by a cool running stream in the forest, maybe the members of a submarine crew on deep submerged time could get convincing doses of surface time through VR. That makes sense because also this is technology that would not take up much space. It's not like installing a holodeck on your submarine. I looked for research testing this out uh, and I, I wasn't able to find anything, but I would kind of be surprised if somebody wasn't – trying this or at least talking about trying to try it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously you don't want a lawnmower man situation <laughs> on your uh, nuclear submarine, but uh, but it seems like there's a lot of positive potential here. Yeah, keep Jeff Fahey off of that thing. <laughs> All right, well, there you have it. Uh, 
I think this was a pretty delightful episode. We got to talk a little bit about uh, nuclear submarines and uh, the prospect of nuclear war, but got to bring it down to just the the basic relatable uh, situation of trying to sleep in strange places and uh, trying to sleep through your various worries. If you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes, including this one, including that uh, 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 There But For Science uh, episode we referenced earlier. Uh, and also you'll find links out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, as always, I want to remind everyone, if you want to support this show, definitely rate and review Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex. Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback about this episode or any other episode, to let us know a topic you think maybe we should cover in the future, or to uh, just say hi, let us know where you're listening from, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.